you were with us last week, I attempted, I naively thought I could get through 15 verses. I don't know why. I thought we could get through this passage uh, in Acts chapter 17 and got about halfway through and realized, no, we're not getting any further. So tonight we're going to continue with our look at Paul at Mars Hill. Paul in Athens, we're going to continue to look at the way that he engaged that city. And so as we do that tonight, we're going to read from Acts 17. So if you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. And I'm actually going to jump down tonight, starting in verse 22. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found an also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of the heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, and having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even if some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the, the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by, the ra by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Welcome, welcome. We uh, are moving through this passage tonight. Acts 17. We skipped sort of the introduction to Athens because we looked at it last week. And so I'm not going to don't have time to actually go into all of that. It's on the podcast. You can go find it. Uh, real quick before we get in, there was two announcements tonight about Christmas. Are you guys ready for that? How many of you guys are already playing Christmas music? Not until after Thanksgiving, guys. <laughs> Not until after Thanksgiving. Uh, it's coming, guys. We, we had a few more weeks 
in Acts, just a couple. And then we're going to be going through an Advent series, looking forward towards Christmas, and it'll be here before you know it. So get ready. The Christmas music is coming. How many of you guys love Christmas music? I am not one of them. I have like two songs. Two songs that I like. And they're not the fun ones. So. <clears throat> At this point, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we're, we're sort of in this section where Paul is traveling. He's on his third missionary journey. At this point, we're familiar with the narrative of Paul as he travels from city to city and he stops on his journeys. And as we pick up tonight, as we looked last week, Paul is in the city of Athens. And he's alone, which is a little odd. He's waiting for his missionary companions to join him. And he finds himself alone in one of the greatest cities of his day. He finds himself alone in this city, wandering the streets. And I think this passage is one of the most well-known passages probably through Paul's missionary journeys. A lot of people have, are familiar with it and have read it. But I, my goal tonight, my goal last week, is really for us to begin to look at Paul as an effective missionary, as, as, the, as he communicates the gospel in a very diverse culture, in a diverse way, to diverse groups of people with varying worldviews. Paul's incredibly versatile in his missionary approach, and he could switch sort of on a dime in the way that he presents the gospel, and yet never compromising the heart of the gospel and the mission behind it. He never wavers on the essence of the gospel, and yet his approach changes drastically sometimes depending on where he's at. So my goal tonight is that we would begin to see, continue to see sort of Paul's heart and his, his, his drive in this as he is a varied approach to his mission. We looked last week at the city of Athens. We talked a lot about its makeup and its waning popularity, its waning influence in society, and yet it was still this massive central, central culture of philosophy and intellect. This was a place that people went to have conversations about really important things. Philosophy was, was a driving thing that was happening in this city. And Luke, in this, in this story, he, he highlights a few very specific things. We talked about this last week. The things that we looked at was what Paul saw. What did he see when he showed up in the city? When he, on his own, solo, wandered around this beautiful city, this, this uh, cultural epicenter of the Roman world, what did he see? We talked about that he, he looked with eyes of a Christian worldview. That when he looked out over the city, he wasn't captivated by the beauty and the elegance and the, the marketplace with all its splendor and the famous artists. When he looked out over the city, when he walked the streets of the city, what he saw was idolatry. What he saw broke his heart. Second point, what he felt he saw the idols, 
The way he saw the city was not like a tourist traveling through this famous city. He saw it with a Christian perspective, and he saw idols, and he saw God's creatures worshiping created things and offering their worship and their sacrifice and their love and affection to things unworthy. And he felt grieved. The word in, uh, in the Bible there the, in Acts 17 is that he was provoked, depending on your translation. That he was provoked. There's a sense of, of like a prophet in the Old Testament when he's, he's provoked by the idolatry that he's seeing. What he saw, what he felt, and then where he went. Where did Paul go? Three places. Remember, we looked at this last week. This is all review. He went three different places. He went to the synagogue. He went to the marketplace. And then he went to Mars Hill. And the third one, he was actually taken there. He didn't willingly, it seems, he didn't want to go there necessarily. And then, finally, tonight, we're going to look at what did Paul say? What did Paul say? So what, what did he see? What did he feel? Where did he go? And what did he say? John Stott said this about this passage. We do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul. And this is because we do not see like Paul. So my heart, my, my goal tonight is that we would, like Paul, we'd begin to see the city of Santa Rosa. We'd begin to see our communities, Sonoma County, the way Paul sees Athens. We'd begin to see the world around us with, with lenses to see what God sees and how he feels. That we would begin to feel the way Paul feels when he looks at Athens. The way that the Lord feels when he looks at our city. And that we would say things like what Paul says here. Okay? We're going to jump into this. Let's see. In the marketplace. We're going to pick up the story as Paul's in the marketplace. He's gone to the synagogue as his normal... uh, habit. Every place that he goes, he goes and he finds the Jewish community. He's engaged them from the scriptures. He, he reasons with them from the Old Testament. And now we find Paul in the marketplace. Verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And the marketplace was the hub of culture. This was the epicenter of where everything happened and took place in the city of Athens. So where the, where the public had discourse and where the public engaged. And, and this is where all the different things that happened. We don't actually have a good example of this, really. The thing I wanted to highlight here is that Paul didn't just wait for the Sabbath day to bring the gospel. He definitely brought the, the gospel. He, he engaged the gospel on the Sabbath with like-minded people, with the scriptures. But he didn't just wait for next Saturday to engage that. He engaged with the lost in the marketplace every day. He was engaging with whoever 
happened to be there. I love the way Luke says that. In the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Day by day, he's engaging. Again, John Stott said this. He said he seems to be deliberately having adopted the famous Socratic method. He's in Athens, after all. And so he's engaging in a dialogue. He's, he's asking questions and, and provoking thought, uh, thought and, and response in the way he's engaging with whoever happens to be there. He's taking his faith public. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. So Luke talks about these different worldviews, these different ways of seeing the world, these different core philosophies. And these are important. I wanted to revisit these a little bit this week to look at these two philosophies. Two types of people that Paul engages here. The Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicure did I talk about this last week? You guys don't remember anyways. Epicureans were materialistic. Epicureans were materialistic. They, their way of seeing things, they believed that the body and even the soul were com composed of fine matter which dissolved after death. They believed that the gods, they believed the gods to be completely and totally indifferent, not involved. The Epicureans didn't believe in divine providence. They didn't believe that God was involved, and they considered um, their whole thing was to enjoy pleasure. To enjoy pleasure. Not necessarily gross idolatry, but pleasure itself. The, the idea, the YOLO, you only live once, this was their motto. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, that was their motto. If it feels good, do it. That sort of captures the sense of the philosophy driving the Epicureans. Does that remind you of any of your friends, neighbors, coworkers? I'm just going to do whatever feels right to me. I'm going to do whatever feels good. Nothing matters anyways. I'm just going to do what feels right to me, and I'm going to enjoy life. I'm going to have a good time. You do you. They pursued this sort of detached and tranquil life apart from pain. They rejected any pain. Their approach to existence was like, everything needs to feel good and make me feel good, make me happy. Flip side, the other people group that Paul's engaging were the Stoics. The Stoics, on the other hand, were, were pantheists. They believed in all sorts of gods. They thought, that, they thought a divine principle, a, a logos, sort of was driving everything. The spark of divinity, this logos, sort of drove all the cosmic order. 
For them, a wise person recognized his connection with everything in the universe, cultivating a lifestyle of self-sacrifice, contentment, regardless of your situation. The Stoics lived with a stiff upper lip, so to speak. They took responsibility. They looked for bringing calmness to everything. For them to pursue the highest good was to live by reason. Stoics saw history as, as sort of an unending cycle of order followed by chaos, then order. They would have applauded Paul's emphasis on God's nearness, but would have rejected the notion that history was moving towards any finite point. It's all just a cycle. Learn to be live in a principled life. Deal with it. Get over it. Again, this is the third time quoting John Stott. You can tell which commentary I read. Uh, to oversimplify, it was characteristic of the Epicureans to emphasize chance, escape, and enjoyment of pleasure. And the Stoic to emphasize fatalism, submission, and endurance to pain. These are two different ways of seeing the world. Two different ways of seeing life in existence. In other words, one group said, if it feels good, do it. There's no consequences anyways. You're nothing but dust. Eat, drink, live, for tomorrow we die. The other group says, grin and bear it. There's nothing you can do about it anyways. Just suck it up. Two completely different ways of seeing it. And yet both worldviews are meaningless and powerless to actually accomplish anything. Both worldviews leave you longing for something that they cannot provide. They leave you longing for something they cannot deal with. Today, your friends and coworkers, the people that you engage with, are dealing with similar philosophies that are powerless to accomplish anything. Their worldviews are, are similar in this. These are not too far off. Many people would consider themselves skeptics. They reject ultimate truth. They reject any idea of actual meaning to life. Reject any need for salvation or for a savior. I think often our, our culture actually applauds the skeptic as the intellectual one. We actually look at the skeptic and say, that's, that's being intellectual. You're, you're using your mind. You're questioning everything. And with that in mind, therefore, anyone who believes that the God of the Bible, believes in the God of the Bible and accepts what he says and accepts your lack and your need for a Savior, you must be naive and primitive. It's not true. Somebody's. Let's rescue the child. The reality is, guys, that skeptics, those who 
find themselves living in either of these philosophical camps, skeptics, intellectuals. They need the church, good Christian thinkers. They need us to engage them, to speak up, and to have truth. I know often we feel ill-equipped to engage the intellectuals, the skeptics, to engage those who maybe have a really thought-out worldview. But the, the world needs you to speak up, to bring truth. Which brings me to what Paul said. And this is one of these case studies of what Paul says that is one of these, like, micro-examples here. In fact, I think the reality is that most of the time, history says that when somebody spoke at Mars Hill and engaged the philosophers, it's probably a three-hour talk. And what we have here is just a few verses. I might draw it out for a few hours, but we'll see. No, I won't, I promise. We just probably honestly have a outline of the key ideas of what Paul said. But it gives us a really good picture of how Paul engages with those who have real intellectual questions, who challenge Paul in his beliefs, and how does he deal with presenting the gospel when he doesn't necessarily have the foundation of the scripture to engage on. So what happens essentially is, is Paul's teaching, as Paul's teaching and, and he's engaging and, and dialoguing in the, in the marketplace, the philosophers say, we're intrigued, but you are presenting all these ideas. They call him a babbler. And we, what that means is the idea of like a bird who picks up a thought and drops it. A babbler is one who picks up an idea talks about it for a minute, and then drops it and moves on to something else. You guys ever talk to people like that? Engage people who pick up an idea and can't stick with it, and they're talking about something else, and you're lost? The philosophers accuse Paul of that. <clears throat> and I think really what's happening is he's, he's talking in, in buckets and in a framework and a worldview that they have no grid for. And so they bring him to Mars Hill, and they, they want him to expound. They want him to explain what he's talking about. They bring him to the assemble, and in verse 24 through 31, effectively, you get Paul's response to this question. What do these ideas mean? Paul's presented with this question. What do you mean? What do these ideas mean? We know that the, the Athenians loved a new idea. They loved talking about new concepts and new ideas. They were thrilled with new, um, new suggestions, new philosophies. I think what Paul does is he actually goes to something very ancient. Goes to something, he goes all the way to the beginning. This just reminded me as I was reading this passage, thinking about this, the, the Athenians' love for the new idea. We also live in a culture that loves something new. 24-hour news cycle, 
your news feed, on your social media. Whatever it is, we, we want the new fresh podcast. What it, whatever it is, we want the new thing. The new iPhone, the new iPad, whatever it is. And it's encouraging to me that Paul goes to something very, very ancient. He's not moved by whatever's flashy and new. He actually engages them on their, their ground and points them to something very ancient. Some things are unchanging. Some truths, some realities are unmoving. And in our love for the new and flashy, there is something beautiful about the ancient, about the unmovable reality, about an old message, an old truth of good news, about something good that happened 2,000 years ago that forever changed the world. So Paul takes this opportunity to engage the people, the philosophers, and anybody who would hear with the truth of the gospel. And he engages them in a way that points them to Jesus. And what we're going to look at is what does he do? What does he say? First thing that he does that's important is he establishes a point of contact. He establishes a point of reference with them. He identifies that with their religious interests. He says, hey, I was walking your city streets, and I saw all these statues, and I saw that you're very religious. Hey, I'm religious too. We're, there's a point of contact here. We can, we can relate on this certain stance. He understands them, and he finds a way to engage Second thing he does is he finds a point of conflict. In the synagogue, Paul could open up the Old Testament like he did here in Athens, and he would read a passage and he would reason with them based on the Old Testament. In Athens and here in the marketplace and at Mars Hill, what does he do? He doesn't open up. Hey, let's turn to the book of Genesis and let's look at the story of the creation. He actually goes to an inscription on an idol. What he references is an inscription. A number of ancient visitors, historians, report seeing altars with inscriptions, just like Paul mentioned. So this is, this is true. We can trust this. And Paul uses the statue to the unknown God. And he points it to the message of the gospel. His speech, the sermon that he's about to give, it, it points to a description on that statue. And he brings the revelation of God. Not a God that you can't know, but a God that actually wants to know you. He engages them with the God that they say is unknown and unknowable, and he says, actually, God cares deeply and wants to know you. What Paul does here, essentially, we 
We talked last week about worldview. Essentially, what he does here is he presents a Christian worldview. It's a very good case study for you to look at. He takes the gospel and he puts it in the larger narrative, the, the meta-narrative of history. He puts it in its place in a much bigger story. And you and I are a part of this story where we find our place there. He takes the story of the gospel and he puts it showing how it's reasonable and trustworthy. He shows the exclusivity of our faith, the necessity of repentance, the need for a redeemer. And really, like, there is, there is incredible theology in this sermon. He shows that God is creator. But not only is he the creator, he's the sustainer of life. Not only does he sustain all the things that he created, but he's the ruler of the nations. He's the Lord who's involved. And as if you thought he was too far, too big, too unknowable, he's actually knowable. He's knowable. He's the father of humanity. And then he is also judge and redeemer. All of that is Paul's response to their question. What do you mean? What do you mean, Paul? What do these ideas mean? God is the creator. You guys okay? Verse 24, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heavens and earth, does not live in a temple made by man. I love that Paul begins this address by going straight back to creation. He goes right back to the beginning. And he declares boldly that the God who made the world and everything in it is the God that we worship. Regarding the Stoics, Paul says that God is distinct from his creation. He is not just like us. And with the Epicureans, Paul says God is not aloof, but he's actually involved and engaged with his creation. He confronts both the prevailing worldviews in a way that contradicts both of them and yet also engages them in the conversation. We also are surrounded by the revelation of God. Romans 1 tells us claim, uh, plainly that God has made himself evident in creation. Paul says that it's absurd to think that the God who made the heavens and the earth can be bound in a temple made by human hands. That's not, you can't lock up our creator. You can't bind him in any temple. The whole earth is the theater of God of creation. He's involved and he's active and he's working amongst us and working around us and through us. Not only is he the creator, but he's the sustainer of life. 
Verse 25, he's not served by human hands as though he needs anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He sustains all things. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. They have their being in him. He upholds all things by the power of his word. This idea stood directly in contrast to the beliefs of the Epicureans and the Stoics. It directly contradicts them. God is distinct from creation, yet intimately involved. That would have blown their minds. Completely different than the way they see the world. He is sustaining the world moment by moment. He cares and is involved with your daily bread. With the mundane things that go on in your life. And yet God doesn't need people. The reality is we need him. He's entirely independent. We are the dependent ones. He has no need for oxygen. He has no need for sleep or for food. He's fully self-sufficient, the scriptures teach. That should humble us. It should remind us that we are not God because we are completely dependent. We need him for all things. We are not God. That should also give us hope. It is through Jesus that we have everything that we need. Through his grace and his mercy. A.W. Tozer said this, God needs no one. But when faith is present, he works through anyone. Isn't that beautiful? When God calls Moses, he told him, I am, is sending you. Moses rightly saw himself as insufficient and incapable to accomplish the task that was before him. And what he learns when he gets this revelation of who God is, of his identity and his reality, is that I am. He is totally sufficient for the task. And we are to learn to cast our insufficiencies on the one who is completely sufficient. The one who upholds all things by the power of his word. And that God who created all things and upholds it, he rules the nations, Paul says. And he, verse, this is verse 26, he made from one man every nation and mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries in their dwelling place. Paul goes on to say that God's independence, his self-sufficiency, the beauty of that, does not mean that he's disengaged, that God is intimately involved with the lives of mankind. He's intimately involved. The reference here to times and boundaries, it either means that God is sovereignty over seasons and borders between uh, the, where we live, or it just means that God is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations and boundaries within them. In either case, the point here is that the God that we worship, the God who created all things and upholds all things, is also sovereign, which means that he is king and ruler and master, that he is in control 
that should bring us peace and comfort. That the God that we worship, who is almighty, creator, powerful, is also sovereign ruler. He has all authority. Moving through this quickly. God is knowable. Verse 27. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of one of us. This again stands in direct contrast to the popular philosophies. The Epicureans who viewed God as being detached and unevolved. Paul says God's purpose in creating humans, the whole purpose in this whole mystery, this meta-narrative, is that he, that we would find him, that we would seek him and find him. His desire is that his creation would find the creator. One of the things that stood out to me in, in studying this is that Paul's language here implies a sin nature. This, this implies this old worldview, right? And here's where this comes from. The image he gives here is, a, is of a blind person groping after God, reaching and trying to find him. One of the commentators says to reach out or to feel in the, is the word in Greek that is used by the poet Homer, who they would have been well familiar with, to describe the well-known story of the Cyclops. You guys familiar with the story? You guys ever read Homer? Anybody? This one-eyed giant captured Odysseus and his men, but Odysseus got the Cyclops drunk and blinded him with a sharp stake in his eye. Though Odysseus wanted to get out from the cave to find his men, doing so was difficult because the Cyclops was groping around. It's the same word that Paul uses here. He was groping around to find and kill the hero. And using this word, Paul's saying that in our sin, we are like the unseeing, blinded Cyclops groping around aimlessly, We instinctively know that God is there, but because of our sin and its blinding effects, we need divine grace and power of Jesus to actually allow us to find him. And that's the good news. That God is not detached and disinterested and unengaged. That he's near to us and that through the work of Jesus, he has made a way for him to be known. He's opened our eyes to see. We don't need to grope around in the dark. Continuing through this sermon, God is the father of humanity. I love that Paul quotes in your Bibles, there's two different, two different phrases there that are, look different, right? They're, they're bracketed different. These are two different quotes from Greek pagan poets. He actually engages and he uses, which is an interesting thought, that Paul knew Greek poetry enough to quote them in reference to the gospel. 
So he uses these two Greek poets to communicate the truth of the gospel. He first quotes this poet about the nearness and sustaining power of God, and then Paul quotes a Stoic author about, uh, who wrote of man's, crea- uh, man's creation in the image of God. And Paul quotes these two, I think, to engage them with where they're at and to communicate a truth that we humans are like our creator in many ways. He not only sustains us, but his resemblance is actually reflected in us. And he does that by quoting one of their own poets. The reality is these poets catch a glimpse of the fact that humans are invaded by this revelation of God, that we are, we are part of this story. And these poets catch a glimpse of that, and, po- and Paul uses it. We are an expression of God's creation. He is our Father. We are like Him in many ways. We are made in His image and His likeness. We are made to know Him and to worship Him and to engage Him. And that means, by definition, that God's revelation, God's revelation isn't just echoed outside of us, but it's echoed inside of us also. Paul says in verse 29 that since we are made in God's image, it would be utterly foolish for us to worship something made by human hands. Completely foolish. Just have a thought on this real quick before we move on. We've talked, we talked earlier about Paul's ability to adapt his message, his ability to engage different audiences. I think it's important to look at the way Paul used these poets and even the word that probably is tying to the story of Odysseus. He's actually engaging the culture in a way that they don't have a backing in the Scripture. If if he started his address by quoting John 3.16, it might not have meant anything to them. Instead, he references poems that they would know. And he engages them with something that was familiar with them, and then he points that towards the narrative of the scriptural truth. He brings the gospel to bear through a passage of poetry that they knew. Now, clearly, these poets were writing, thinking of Zeus and thinking of other things. This is not truth in entirety, but he engages it much like you would engage a song or an art piece and say, hey, that's an interesting thought. That's an interesting song. Let let me tell you what that means to me and how that reflects the way I worship. He takes a piece of what was popular and readily understood, and he engages them. This is important because I think Paul's whole thing here, his whole message here, reminds us that those who you are talking to on a day-to-day basis, you engage with in the marketplace, so to speak, They're not just blank hard drives. 
They have a worldview. They have culture and life that surrounds them and pervades them. They have a way of seeing the world, and it's our responsibility to engage that in a way of relevance, but then to point them true the to the biblical truth, to confront places in their worldview that are inco inconsistent and incongruent with reality, that are unapplicable. Wrong ideas must lovingly be countered and replaced with new categories and new meanings to allow people to see the world and the gospel for the reality it is. We have to do this sometimes before we can even get to the scriptures. You have to level the playing field in a way that you can have a real and honest conversation. Has anybody ever experienced this? You're trying to talk to somebody, and they might even have a framework from history or from, from childhood of what the Bible is. But you start to talk about an idea of sin or salvation, the person Jesus, and you realize really quickly that we're not talking about the same thing. Our definitions are completely different. They have a pre-existing way they see the world, a lens that they see you from, and we have to do some work in engagement to be able to culturally have that conversation. Some work to actually bridge that gap. Where does Paul go with this whole thing? God is both judge and rescuer. He starts at creation, and where does he land this whole narrative? That God, the God that we worship, Jesus, is both judge and rescuer. Verse 30 through 31, Paul says, The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by, the raising, him, by raising him from the dead. Paul's warning of judgment. He says ignorance has been Overlooked is actually the word he uses, which, which gives you this idea that, Paul is, that God is like turning his eye away from your sin. But I think that in reality what's happening here with that word overlooked, it doesn't mean that God ignored human rebellion, but that in his great mercy and kindness and gentleness, he didn't immediately visit your iniquity with what is due. He didn't immediately bring the wrath that is due your sin. In his mercy, he allowed time. And with the coming of Jesus, however, this is the gospel. This is the good news of, of history that a defining moment happened throughout the story of history. In the, in the person of Jesus, everything changed. And while for a time in God's mercy, God overlooked our sin, it now in the work of Jesus, with the coming of Jesus, a deci decisive turning point has taken place. 
and now everyone must repent. Everyone must change the way you think, must turn from their sin and walk towards Jesus. The reality that God will judge has been seen clearly throughout the resurrection of Jesus. You can see it clearly in the reality of what happened to Jesus on the cross. And Paul tells this group of people, the Athenians, that God has committed this judgment to his son, to Jesus, who will judge everyone on a fixed day in perfect righteousness. I don't know, I I actually really enjoy that Paul's engaging with this pluralistic idea, these philosophers and intellectuals, and he just goes straight to the heart of it. God has fixed the day when he will judge everyone. Everyone will stand before this judgment seat of God, and he will judge everyone. What is necessary now is repentance. If people repent, this same judge will save you. He will not be your condemnation, but your salvation. Salvation comes through this man, this second Adam, who lived the life that we couldn't live, who, who fulfilled the, the reality that we couldn't fulfill. He died the death that we deserved, and he rose on your behalf. We come from one man, one Adam, and we must turn to a different man, Jesus, who is Lord and King and ruler and judge and Savior. The call to repent is clear and consistent through the story of the New Testament and the Scriptures. Everyone must repent. We must turn to Jesus. And I love the clarity of that. That even though he's engaging with philosophers, he doesn't skip around. He doesn't play around. You have to repent. You have to change the way you're thinking. Follow Jesus. There are several things that would have just been completely outrageous to those hearing Paul. Some of these include, Paul's, Paul's talking about the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus. That stands in complete opposition to this pluralistic world that they were living in. He's suggesting that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, that he's alive and well. That flies in the face of the Greek philosophical view. Paul says that history is moving towards a climax, a fixed day, when God will judge the living and the dead. Direct contradiction to the Stoics. The reality is, you guys, these truths, these realities still offend people. For, for you or I to stand and say, history is moving somewhere. There's a fixed day when God will judge the earth. Everyone will be held to account. Repentance is the call for everyone. When we say those things, it offends people. It can be taken as offensive. Literally, they... they stop Paul. He begins talking about the resurrection of the dead, and they stop him. They can't hear it. Some still want to hear, but they stop him at that moment. This also is comforting to me. The reality of this is comforting, that, that Paul 
in presenting the truth of the gospel, there's two responses. Some want to hear, and some want to respond. Some, I think, want to move towards repentance. Despite all of our cultural engagement, all the things that we do, this is the reality. Some will engage, and some will reject. Some will engage it. What we learn from Paul, I think in this story, is that even when we're engaging an intellectual world and we're engaging a skeptical world, you cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the whole story. You have to point people to the reality of who God is and what he's done and what he's accomplished and, and how much he's, he's done who he is and what he's done, and then therefore you can get to what that means for you and I. The call is repentance. The call is to change the way you think, to change the way you act, to lay down your life and to follow this ruler, this sovereign king who has all authority and all power. And he is to be master and king, not just your ticket to a beautiful place like the Epicureans would have wanted, but your king and ruler also. There is no biblical worldview without a cross. There is no biblical worldview without the reality of Jesus who laid his life down and paid the price you can't pay, endured the death that you deserve, and deserves to be followed wholly. Deserves to have everything you have to give. There's no part way in this. There's no halfway in following Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. We'll close and go into communion here in a minute. Father, I thank you for this case study, this example we have of the way the Apostle Paul presents the good news of Jesus, the way that he brings the reality, the truth of the Scriptures to a culture that had no understanding. God, I pray that as we, this week, as we have conversations, as we dialogue with friends and neighbors, as we ask questions and have questions asked of us is that we would live in a way that provokes questions for which the gospel is the only answer. That we would clearly present the reality of the good news of Jesus. That you are the creator and sustainer of all things. That you are Lord and sovereign. That you are the good father who cares deeply about the things that we care about. That you are knowable, that you desire an intimate relationship with us, that you desire to know us and to engage us. And God, that you are both judge and savior. You are both redeemer and judge. God, I pray that those truths, the, the reality of who you are and what you've done would be on our lips, that would be on our minds, 
that it would provoke us to action, that it would lead us as missionaries with the truth of the gospel. Father, you are worthy of all of this. In Jesus' name.